We are concluding the official ending of the Doctrines of Grace class. And I'll repeat this at the end. Hopefully I'll remember to do so. But next week, we're going to discuss two or three of the, what we call, or what might be called, the problem texts. Bible verses that seem to negate or undo or deny what we've been talking about or what we've been teaching. And I'll give you that list of at least three. They're more than three, but at least three because we don't have the time to, to do the seven or eight of them that would typically be presented as a defense for the other side, if you would. But in preparation for next week, you may have questions that or concerns or disagreements or whatever that you might have. And let us ask you to do this because we won't have time to field all the questions in here and people can't hear and we didn't understand that and where that is, you know. Would you, if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you have disagreements, we want to field those. We want you to express them. You're not attacking us. We believe this is the Word of God. You're not even attacking the Word of God. You are literally saying this is something that I don't understand and with which I disagree, and that's fine. The Holy Spirit is not going to fall apart. He's not going to withdraw himself from you. In fact, this is good because it is an exercise of faith, and it is an exercise of exegesis, getting into the Word to study out what God's Word says in the broad sense rather than in one little verse. And that is a major good thing in our lives. So if you would, email us this week. If you want to just email lindsay at lakeviewchristiancenter.com and she will give to us any of these questions. Just put lindsay, you know, everybody knows who Lindsay Jobert is. Lindsay at lakeviewchristiancenter.com. If you have questions, please let us know. Don't do this. I'm not going to let them know, but you know, I have a lot of things I don't agree with here and on the side, and you're not telling us. That's dishonoring to the Lord. It's dishonest. So let's be a congregation like the Bereans in Acts 22. Acts 17, someone should have shouted out the right chapter. <laughs> and let us study the scriptures to see whether these things were so. Amen? So let's do that. So Todd, are we ready to turn on the machine? Is it already on? Okay. Fine. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Father, thank you not only for saving us, but showing us what you're doing. Father, thank you for giving us an increasing appreciation of grace. Father, when we consider, when we would stop and just think for a moment, that you could easily and justly have walked right past us, never opening our hearts to the gospel by your spirit. And Father, that would not have been unfair, it would not have been unjust. And yet, Father, here we are this morning, a collection of those who used to be rebels, 
sitting at your table, rejoicing with you, having experienced the benefit of the highest price, even the purchase of our salvation through the blood of Christ. Father, thank you for this. Father, we rejoice. Father, would you cleanse our hearts of dissatisfaction and criticism and judgmentalism and superiorityism and all these other anti-God-isms as you apply to us the revelation of your mercy of your kindness, of your forbearance, of your gentleness, of your patience, of your encouragement, of your discipline, of all that you do to love us into the kingdom of God. Thank you for this, Father. Father, this morning as we conclude this series, Father, we pray that as we prayed in every other aspect of the series, that your Holy Spirit would illumine our minds and our hearts, would turn on lights in dark places. Father, that your word would come bursting forth in glory and in radiance in us, transforming us from glory to glory for your purpose, that your name may be praised in all the earth and all the heavens forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's quickly <clears throat> review where we have been. Remember, we have used the acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, as a roadmap, as Keith said last week, as a roadmap to get somewhere. So these are the signs along the highway to describe, are we still on the right highway of God's way of salvation? And remember what the T, T had to do with total depravity. Because man has rejected the righteousness of God, and please let's remember the basic fundamental biblical context of our depravity and of our need of the doctrines of grace. Here it is, the heart of it is, that in relation to God himself and his righteousness, man is undone. Man has rejected, beginning with Adam and all of us continuing to do so. Man has rejected the righteousness of God. We have become unrighteous in every respect of our being so that we are totally incapable of knowing, seeking, and understanding God or doing any good. And just drop one of the O's out of good because a lot of people struggle with it. What do you mean good? Just put God in that, God activities. Because we can't do God activities without God active in us. So without doing able to do any good, completely cut off from a relationship with God under the wrath of God forever. <clears throat> Remember the you, unconditional election. Therefore, God decrees, and by the way, God has decreed this, remember, before the foundation of the world. Therefore, God has decreed that he will unilaterally, on his own initiative, unilaterally intervene in the lives of those whom he has foreknown. Remember what the word 
for known means, to know relationally and love relationally before the foundation of the world. That's what that word means, whom he has foreknown before the world was created, to do all that is necessary for our salvation. L, limited or particular atonement or definite atonement. God sent his son as the sacrifice for the sin of his people so that those whom he foreknew would be in Christ when he died and rose for their salvation. Remember, our unity in Christ is the crux of this entire issue. We were in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse. We need to know these verses. Verse what? 4. We were in Christ before the foundation of the world relationally in God's heart before the foundation of the world being worked out in our salvation to us in our experience at a particular time when quote I was born again I the irresistible grace God sent his spirit into the world to be the voice of the gospel to call Jesus sheep into the fold of God by removing our rejecting heart so that we would willfully and joyfully receive Christ that's where we are so this brings us to the P the last letter in the tulip which is typically called the perseverance of the Saints but we're going to put it the preservation of the Saints because if we emphasize it the perseverance of the Saints we believe it puts too much responsibility you notice what I did say I did not say no responsibility it puts the weight of the responsibility on us to persevere <clears throat> where the weight of the responsibility and the power and the activity and the work is on God to preserve us which, with which we agree, as we'll hopefully see by the end of the term today. Preservation. What does it mean to persevere or to preserve? It means to keep to the end. How many of you remember your grandmas and them used to make fig preserves or something preserves? How many of you remember that? Remember the old bell jars? My grandmother, we would, I would pick all the uh, figs off the tree, and she, I'd bring them in, and she would do all this and make the best fig preserves everybody, anybody ever tasted. She put them in these bell jars, I think they called them, with the ball jars and with a seal, <laughs> and, and she would just put them on a shelf, and we could have them almost, it, it preserved the figs until the time that they ministered to us. Preservation. <laughs> Preservation. I think you're laughing about something that I'm not thinking about, but it was that kind of a laughter. Now that we have been saved, here's the critical question that many believers struggle with. And I think some of you have too. And I know I have. And you don't have to raise your hand when I say how many. How many of us have struggled, maybe still, am I going to make it to the end? You see, if this salvation was initiated because of my decision to receive Christ and maintain if I walk in a certain way, I will never know whether I will be able to make it to the end. You cannot know because you could before you die. There was a preacher I was talking to one time. We were in Russia. And I asked him, let me just say Joe. I said, Joe, a man has served Christ for 40 years. A woman, doesn't matter. He's faithful. <clears throat> and one night something happens and he goes out and gets drunk, walks in front of a truck and gets killed. The man said this, he's going to hell. 
you say, well, he deserves to because he sinned. And that's right in that theology. But in the theology of the Bible where it says God preserves us, even in the midst of our failure, how many of you are glad of that? God preserves us. So let's look at it this morning. Our assurance that God will preserve us to the end starts on the same foundation as our salvation. Our, pers- our, our assurance of our making it to the end must be based within the same context of what God has done and our receiving that as we do when we are saved. God's grace in choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world is God's grace in keeping us to the uttermost in Christ. Our union with Christ is the basis of our salvation. Our union with Christ is the basis of our preservation in Christ. It is our union in Christ which is the work and the basis and the meaning of everything that we have in Christ. And that union began before the world was and will continue after this world is gone and when we're in the new heaven and the new earth. So let's look at how the preservation of the saints works from two perspectives. We're going to look first at God's perspective, and then we're going to look at our perspective. So first, our preservation is God's will. God saves us for the purpose of keeping us saved. Please remember this. God does not save us for the purpose of just saving us. Salvation is the door into which we enter the kingdom of God. He has not brought us to the door because of the door. He's brought us to the door and we cross the threshold in Christ in order to get into the house of God and live in his house forever. So we must not make our salvation the only and ultimate and central goal. The central goal of God's purpose is to take us all the way through to heaven itself and the new heaven and the new earth in which and where and with whom we will dwell with our God forever before his face forever. Amen? Revelation 21 and 22 gives you a wonderful picture of that. Let's remember Romans 8, 29. It gives us God's intention in our salvation. What is it? For whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. God's intention in accomplishing in those he foreknew by the working of his power is that we will be conformed to the image of his son. This is not something that God started and hopes, hope, hope. I hope they make it to the end. I'm just hoping that some way they don't do something that's going to foul up my eternal plan. But let's do it, and let's hold our breath. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's knock on wood and hope some kind of way we get to the end with these folks and we don't lose too many. Is that the kind of God you see in this Bible? Is the power of God to save us the same power that keeps us saved? The power that did the most work, the worst place we were in, unsaved. Absolutely the worst place, taking the greatest power, if you would. He's done that. Now, are we going to say, now that we're saved, I hope that that power, 
I mean, if a man has picked up an entire house on his own and he reaches for a pencil, do you think, oh, I hope he can pick up that pencil? Well, come on. If he picked up the house, is it obvious that he can pick up the pencil? Let's hope so. He's going to keep it safe. Remember this verse in John 6, 39. And this, Jesus is speaking, and this is the will of God who sent me, that I should lose nothing. I shall lose no one. How many is no one? Nobody. How many are included in God's people in none? All of us. Jesus didn't say, I hope, I hope the Holy Spirit does a work that we can at least keep most of the folks together until we get to heaven he doesn't say he said that i shall lose how many none all of whom he has given me remember the giving and i will raise it up on the third day clearly god's will is to preserve all whom he saves listen to this verse from hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 for by a single offering jesus has perfected for how long how long how long how long is forever almost until the end those who are being sanctified you see these are assurance comments now, i know what's going through your mind what about the warnings well you remember we did the warnings in another class a long time ago i think it was in a hebrews class and keith addressed that you may want to get that tape excellent addressing of that issue we don't have time to go through it today but we have other teachings in that area so what does this mean perfected for all time what does it mean let's look at it this morning and let me let's read together Romans 8 28 to 30 Paul has been discussing the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're saved by the entrance of the Holy Spirit. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're not of God. You know, and he finally comes to this great <clears throat> crescendo in verse 28. And actually, when we look at verse 28, we should not look at it alone. We should look at verse 28 within the context of 28, 29, and 30, and also remember why we have gotten to verse 28. Therefore, Paul says this, And we know that God works all things together for the good for those who, who love him and are the called according to the, his purpose. For, there it is, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the first among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, <coughs> he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Now look at verse 30. Notice this, those whom he justified, what? What does it say? He also what? Glorified. Now, how many of us, I would have written it this way. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he sanctifies. Those whom he sanctifies, he glorifies. I would have put it like that because I would have put it on something that I need to do and better do and make sure I keep doing it in order to be glorified, amen. You see, but God doesn't put it that way because the emphasis is not on me. It's on God's decree and power and intention and purpose. Those whom he justified, those he also glorified. Does it say might glorify? 
we hope to glorify? Does it give any expression of how he's going to glorify it if they do this or if they do that? He simply says, if you've been justified, you will be glorified. How many of you see that in here? It's there. Paul was a surgeon with words. He is, a, he is one of the, probably the greatest wordsmith biblically that we know about. And this man is writing exactly and absolutely correctly every aspect of the Word of God that is given to him by the Holy Spirit. And when he says this, he means what he says, and he says what he means. There's no double talk here. In this verse, Paul is dealing with our permanence, with the permanence of God's work in us. Remember what he says in Philippians 1.6, what? I am persuaded of this very one thing, that he who has what? Begun a good work in me or in us and you, what? What hopefully might, what does he say? Will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What does that mean, Jesus Christ, the day of Christ? That means the day when Jesus comes back for the church. That means the day that Jesus establishes the new heavens and the new earth. That means the day that we stand before the throne of God totally and absolutely accepted as his children to receive the crowns of life. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul says, I am persuaded of this, that the God who saved me will keep me and you saved until that day. He doesn't equivocate here. He doesn't give any language, or I hope so, or any provisos if you do this or that or the other. As far as God's will is concerned, we're not on our side of this. We're on God's side of this. We absolutely know there is our side, which we'll talk about a little bit in a little bit. Why does being justified lead to being preserved unto glorification? Why? Well, you see, the reason it does has to do with what is meant by justification. I want to spend a few minutes on justification. I realize that we've been taught this a lot, but you just stay with me to be bored as we go through it because it's something that we regularly need to remind ourselves about. Justification is, many people have said it this way, and I don't deny it, I'm just saying what others have said, is the heart of the gospel. So let's talk about justification because the answer, I think, or at least a huge understanding of our preservation in Christ by the Holy Spirit according to the will of God has to do with this understanding of what does it mean justification or to be justified. That's why we need to know our Bibles and understand verses and bring them back and forth and put together the tapestry of the Word of God, not just a verse here, there, and yonder, but put it all within the great context of what God is doing. Justification, biblically, has two components. First, it has to do with a right or correct or legal or acceptable standing before a holy God and His law. It has to do with our having perfectly kept the law every moment of our life. That's what justification has to do with. It is a decree. Secondly, it also has to, be, has to do with being given the very righteousness of Christ himself. 
Now, this is not a work that changes me on the inside. This is a work that has to do with my standing before God. What changes me on the inside is once I have been justified, then the Holy Spirit on the inside of me begins to sanctify or to change me, to conform me into that which God has said I am. Now, you see, the Catholic view is this, that justification is an infusing or slowly getting more and more justified and acceptable to God. That's not what the Bible says. It is a completed work which changes my standing before the legal bar of God. It has nothing to do with internally making me different. Once I am justified, then as a result, the Holy Spirit who lives in all of us who are saved begins to do the inside change so that what is happening on the inside is becoming conformed to what has been decreed about us. Oh, oh you're understanding this. Is this clear to you? If it isn't, make some notes or write something down and ask us questions as we said. Justification James White says this in his book, The God Who Justifies. Justification is a statement that man is no longer under the curse of the law, but stands righteous, just before the bar of God. Remember Romans 4.25. Christ was delivered up for our transgressions and sin and raised for our justification. This means that when Jesus died, this means that when Jesus died, God reversed our original status in Adam as unrighteous. But we get this? It means that God makes a legal decree, determination, decision that in Christ, when Jesus dies, our status in Adam, our old, condemned, unrighteous, alienated enemies weak hostile rebellious rejecting status in Adam is changed so that <clears throat> excuse me so that as we were lawbreakers our new status in Christ as righteous we become law keepers I don't think you understand what that means because no one just screamed let's see what it means St. Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, God made Christ to become sin. That means a sin bearer. Judicially sinful. Not personally sinful. Judicially sinful. It's a judicial declaration. Treby can tell you all about that kind of stuff. It is a decree of the judge. Jesus became sin. Judicially sinful. Who knew no sin so that where where what word where in what word in him do you see the union the necessity of our union with Christ so that in him not because of me not because of what I'm gonna do not because of who I am not even because of my need it's because of God's decree you're not saved because you need to be saved you're saved because God decreed it that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God placed our sin upon Christ at the cross. So that at the cross, God was punishing Jesus as if, as if Kenneth Copeland is wrong. As if Jesus had actually sinned. It's a decree. 
so that when Jesus died, God declared all our sin as punished in him. And where was your sin when Jesus died? Where was it? In the future? How many of you know that when Jesus died, none of us were here, except maybe Glenn Lang, uh, Glenn, uh, what's your name? Moscow. He's old enough to have been here. But how many of us were not here when Jesus died? We see, none of us were here. So when Jesus died and said, it is finished, all of our sin is forgiven, how much of our sin was in him? All that he knew about. And he knows about how much of it? All of it. He took our future sin. We weren't even born yet. And he placed it into Christ. We just didn't know about it until we came to Alpha. We heard a sermon or something happened and we got saved. That's when we found out about this is what happened a long time ago. I'm just coming into the good of it now. Wow. And from my perspective, it did look like I got saved because I was hunting God down. That's what it looked like for me, but it certainly there was another side of that. You see, the puppets may think they're doing it on their own, but they're being manipulated or moved or controlled by someone who's behind the scenes. So that when Jesus said, it is finished, we were declared as not guilty of any sin. We were justified. Declared not guilty. Justified. Declared not guilty. So that's the first part of justification. The first and primary work of God. The first and primary work of God in the cross. The first and primary work of God in the cross is the forgiveness of our sins. Apart from that, nothing else is done and can be done. The first and primary work of God is what? The forgiveness of our sin. So that when Jesus died, the blood is spilled and accepted by God as the propitiation, the washing away of our sin because the wrath of God has been justly, eternally expended on Christ that's why you need a divine Savior not to Jehovah's Witness created Savior because he ain't big enough to take all the sin and eternality of its effect upon God you need the divine Savior that's why the Mormons are wrong and the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong they don't get it right because they've gone past the Bible into other areas they've taken that which they didn't understand and created man understandings Oh, it must mean this or it can't mean that or it must mean it means what it says so now we have been declared what forgiven of how much how many of you remember Colossians 2 13 having forgiven what is that present past or future having forgiven having forgiven all can you get that in your system that yesterday when you were so nasty to your wife or your wife was nasty to you or you had an attitude or you had a thought or you had a feeling or you did this and that can you get this in your system that that sin went to the cross 2,000 years ago and even in the purpose of God it was always in the cross can we get that into our hearts my personal sin oh this is incredible I, I got to take a moment out. So we may have to go a minute over. I remember one day I'm printing. I own a printing company. And I'm running a little multi-lift. That means a printing press. That's how it sounded. 
And the Lord said to me, isn't it amazing that I forgave all your sin when you were saved? All the things that you did. How many of you know that's amazing? All my sin that I did. Oh, great, thank you. Then he says this to me. I mean, it's just like I'm hearing a voice. But you know what's more amazing? I forgave you of the sins that you haven't and are going to commit. I turned the press off. I had to yell. I had to yell. He forgave me of future sins. He forgave me of what? How many future sins? Brethren, when we sin, we need to be shamed. We need to confess. We need to be overcome with, I have dishonored God. We do not need to be overcome with guilt from the enemy. You say to the enemy, yes, you liar, I did sin, but that sin is forgiven, and because it is forgiven, I go back to a God who has his arms continually open to me to receive me and to wash me of this stuff and overcome it. I will not be trodden down with your lies. Fight a fight. Resist the devil. It's the only way you're going to live in freedom of sin. Kick the thing's teeth down his throat when he comes against you. Don't think about what you did and boo, 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 boo. Get up, confess, and move into God more. The second thing is that we are given the righteousness of Christ. Now, I struggled with this for years and probably will need to continue to struggle with it. We are not only forgiven in Christ... We are also given the personal righteousness of Jesus himself. We're given what, Bob? The personal righteousness of Jesus himself. So that now God views and deals with us as if we were always personally righteous in the same way that Jesus is personally righteous. Now, this is crazy. How many of you know it's big to be forgiven? But then you're forgiven, and now that you're forgiven, let's see what you're going to do with that, and let's see how much you're going you're to work it. No, now you, because I've forgiven you, now these are the things you better start doing in order to please me. No. God has clothed us. Remember Luke 15, 17, the boy came to his senses and went home, and he still had pig poop on him. Come on, church, he still had pig poop on him. Do you remember where he was in the pig pen? He didn't take a shower and then came. He has stench of pig poop, rags of filth. And the father said, put on him the robe, the robe of righteousness. Cover it over. It doesn't deny that he had pig poop. It just covered it over. So the father's relationship with his son was as a son accepted home. And he put on him the signet ring, the ring of authority. And he put on him the new sandals, the walking in that righteous robe. Go back and reread Luke 15 about the prodigal, the lavish grace of God being poured out there. That's a picture. It's not a picture of how to be saved. It is a picture of what God does when we come to our senses by the Holy Spirit. Don't take it into another area. It isn't that kind of an area. 
In the same way, remember Isaiah 53, 11, my servant will make many, that means the Messiah, to be accounted righteous. Righteous is an accounting thing. It is a thing that is told about us. It is a declaration of our new status. We are in Christ, and when God now sees us and views us, he views us within the context of Jesus himself. And every activity and thought and attitude that God has toward his son is also equally given toward us. Amen? That's incredible. It's incredible. In the same way our sin was reckoned to Christ as his personal sin, our personal righteousness was reckoned to us as if we had always, his personal righteousness, as if we had always kept his law. When Jesus was not sinning in this world, guess where we were? Where were we when he was not sinning as a man? We were in him. And so God sees us as having fully, completely, and perfectly kept all of the requirements of the law. You need to be free today, some of you. You need to be freed of the shackles of the burden of legalism and, and guilt and all this stuff that Satan wants to put on you. You need to see yourself. I am being viewed by God and handled by him and, and associating with him. And, and, and understood and thought by him as if I had the same perfect obedience as his son. That's difficult to get your mind on that, isn't it? You know why? Because our minds are so prone to fleshly activities and me-centeredness and this sin that is in us by the, our flesh. Now, this isn't a, a teaching today about what about sin and what about confession. That's another area for another day. Are we denying that we sin? No. Are we denying we need to repent and confess? No. Are we denying that we should not sin? No, none of that. But what we're saying is from the bar of God's justice and from his view and vantage and from his understanding and from his thought, this is who we are in Christ and who Christ is in us. You see, what, this is what Romans 8, uh, 3.22 tells us. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We have received that righteousness. This is what Paul tells you, too, in Philippians 3.9. We're declared forgiven, and we are declared as having the righteousness of Christ. Now, what does this have to do with the preservation of the saints? What does this have to do with my being preserved to the end? Everything. Everything. In Christ, we now have the righteousness of Christ so that God relates to us and loves us and treats us in the same way and with the same faithfulness as he does his own son. You see, too many of us still think that when we do something wrong or we don't live up to a standard or whatever it is, that in some way God's coming to get us and God is still trying to do something in us to bring us up to a good enough standard, to try to bring us into a place where he can begin to kind of relate to us in a loving way. This is not the case. 
We must see this from God's perspective in order to be freed of our controlled, sinful, man-centered perspective in order that my life and your life will take on the activity of the Holy Spirit as I cooperate with Him in a way that I am now and we are now enjoying and living into this declaration of being righteous in Christ. You're not going to get there as long as we don't see this. This will always hamper you, a lack of understanding in this. With an understanding and appreciation and in a, a real receiving of this, we will grow in righteousness. We will grow into, to be conformed to. It's like I have a big suit on. I'm wearing TC's jacket. And TC, everybody knows TC? Stand up, TC. Come on, stand up, big guy. Look at the dude. All right, I'm going to wear that dude's jacket. And so here I come in with the jacket hanging to the ground and everything, but I'm dressed in TC's clothing. And what my life now is, is about is doing whatever is necessary and eating right and exercising right and growing correctly into the forming of this jacket. So it begins to literally, I begin to come to a place where it fits me more and more every day. But I'm still clothed with it. I still have it on. I still have it on. You see... No wonder Paul says in Romans 5, 1 and 8, 1, when we talk about this preservation in Christ, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The war is over. The war about my sin and your sin is over. May I repeat it? The war is what? May we say it together? Over. He's declared peace. Peace. He signed the treaty in the blood of Jesus. And for him to go back on any aspect of it, is a denial of his integrity. Not only will he not, but he cannot deny himself. He has to keep it. Why? Because he's bound by his own integrity, not externally about us or anything, but within the context of who our God is. He's not a man that he should lie. Therefore, there is now what? No condemnation, no judgment, no wrath, no hell for those where? Who are where? Does it say for those who are going to do something? Does it say those who hard enough work? Does it say for it those who are where? You see, this whole thing is a placement. In Adam all die. You know why people go to hell? They go to hell because when they die, they're still in Adam. They go to heaven. Why? Because when they die, they're in Christ. That's the issue. The issue is where are you in life? It is not an issue of what I'm doing and what I'm going to do in my sin and whether I'm a this or that and my mom and all. It has everything to do with am I in Adam or am I in Christ. And the decision about that and the action of that is God's. I can't take myself out of Adam. I can't put myself into Christ. And once I'm in Christ, I can't take myself out of Christ and put myself back into Adam. It is an irrevocable work. You see, the permanence of our right standing before God is the permanence of, his, of God, Jesus standing before God. The permanence of our standing before God is in Christ. Hebrews 7, 25, Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. I know what people say, and I don't disagree with it. That means Jesus is always praying for us. I think it means a world more. 
I think it means a whole world more than just Jesus is praying for us. Hebrews 7, 25. Here's what I think it has to do with. In Christ, if he is expelled from the presence of God, we also. Because where he is, we are. Where he goes, we go. Because we are in him. So what does it mean, intercession before God? It means that our standing before a holy and just God forever is the result of Christ as a risen man standing before God forever. And as long as Jesus, the risen Jesus Christ, the risen man, as long as he stands before God, we are in him standing before God. The moment he is expelled or leaves for some reason, we're going with him. We're not even maintained in heaven on the basis of anything but our standing in the standing of this man. Do we see that? That's why Jesus rose as a man. We're standing in this man who represents us and who has been our substitute. So if you're trying to figure out what's going to happen to us, think this way. As long as Jesus remains, what? I remain. How long is Jesus remaining? forever therefore I remain forever we're talking about the work of God here now our preservation is our will I said our preservation is God's will our preservation is also our will why will we preserve to the end you know why for the same reason we got saved how many of you received Christ because you wanted to how many of you received Christ because you wanted to Come on, you wanted to receive Christ. You called out to him. How many of you wanted to receive Christ? Or how many of you were made to? Let me put it that way. I'm talking about in the flesh. I'm going to make you do this. Hold a gun to your head. Am I not communicating correctly? How many of us internally desired to receive Christ? Yes. We got saved because we wanted to. I'm talking about from my perspective. I'm talking about eternal God. He created a what? Wanting in me. Do you remember last week? He created a what? Wanting in me. He overcame the no and the rejection, Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. He overcame that no rejection, and he changed our heart. He liberated our affections that were caged by Satan. He liberated our affections, and he anointed our affections. He gave us desire and ability, finally, to say, I'm coming out of this cell because I see now what's on the outside and the door's unlocked. I'm coming out. So why did we come out? Because we wanted to. God wanted us to, therefore what? We wanted to. Do you see this? It is God's work, but it is our cooperation with this work receiving it. So we changed my affection. We learned last week that we willingly and joyfully receive Christ. Remember, taste and see that the Lord is good. You see, God in Christ has recreated our spiritual taste buds. The things of the world that used to taste good to us are now (laughs) spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. Now we obey. Why? Because we want to. Even if we experience a season of sin, by God's will, we come to our senses and, if you would, come home. How many of us have experienced seasons or activities of sin and all of a sudden came to our senses and say, oh my word, what am I doing? I'll go back to God. How many of us have done that? Why are you going back? Because you want to. Because you want to. It's our affections. 
my spiritual affections have been now recreated with God affections. And I'm remaining in Christ because I want to. He's not making me persevere. I want to persevere. What does this look like? 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. What can we do? Yes, what are some of the tests that I can apply to my walk in order to determine if I am cooperating with God's grace to preserve me to the end? What are some of the things? This is not an exhaustive list. This is just some things that I felt the Lord gave me. Let's examine ourselves as we go through this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Let us regularly do that. Let's regularly do that. It's good to do it. <clears throat> First of all, do I regularly desire? Answer this yourself. And you might want to put either a Y or an N, yes or a no next to these for yourself. Do I regularly desire to be faithful to love and serve God? Does that mean that every moment of my living life that I am going to be perfected in this and never have an attitude about God or no? It means do I on a regular, ongoing basis want to love and serve God? Answer it on your paper. Have circumstances, whatever they are, have they destroyed my affections? Circumstances may dampen them, they may cause you to question God, may give you an attitude for a season, but do those seasons last? Is my life defined by I don't have any more affection for God? No matter what the uh, circumstance. Do I sin without shame or regret, not seeking to repent and overcome sin? Now that I'm in Christ, man, I'm going to live any hell way I want to, and I'm going to do every one I want to because I've been saved, and I'm never going to lose my salvation. And it doesn't matter to me what happened. You ain't saved. May I repeat it? Is that your attitude? What? You're not saved because the Holy Spirit works in you differently. Am I seeking, number four, to know and experience God through prayer and the Word? Did I say, Perry, that you're doing it the best in the world? Did I say you need to not improve anything? But am I seeking just to know God through the word and through prayer? Is that a desire for me? Is that an activity in my life? Am I growing in a love for God's people? Oh, now here's the one that might sting you. I have to love one another? Yes. Read 1 John if you're not sure about that, especially chapter 4. I even have to love you, Humbertus. I got to go back and read John, 1 John 4, 5 more times. Do I feel a growing desire to give thanks to God, to worship Him, all that He's done in and for me? Do you see a growing thing in you? This is the glory you see of our salvation. This is why it's called such great salvation in Hebrews. We are sanctified by Christ through faith. We are secured by Christ through faith because we've been saved by Christ through faith. You notice I changed it for by grace you've been saved, and I put what? For by faith. Because some people are going to think, I was saved by faith. No. You were saved by Christ. You received it by faith. It's a free gift that you said yes to by faith. You were saved by Christ. Let us not be sloppy in our understanding of the word. I was not saved by faith. I was saved by Christ. When was I saved by Christ? In a time frame. When was I saved by Christ in a time frame? 
when Jesus said, it is accomplished or finished. That's when God said, and named each one of you, saved in a time frame. When did I come to see it? When I experienced being born again, receiving it by faith, right? That's what happened. So here's what Paul says. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through or in him who loved us. For I am persuaded or sure that neither death nor life, now that, those inclusive terms, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. And he has in there probably the demonic powers, not even Satan. <laughs> I like that. Nor anything else in all creation. How much is anything else including? Come on, how much? What about what I'm deciding to do? Is that in anything else? Is what I'm deciding anything else in all creation? Come on, come on. Isn't it? What I'm deciding is in that anything else. Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Can you say amen to this? Amen. amen. Next week, we're going to go over two or three, four, whatever we have time for, texts. Let me just give three to you that I know about. You might want to be reading them and studying about them. 2 Peter 3, 9. 1 Timothy 2, 4. 1 John 2, 2. There, there are others. There's a whole book of Hebrews, but we don't have time to do all that next week. Come with questions, or rather the email questions in, Lindsay Lakeview, at LakeviewChristianCenter.com if you have questions, concerns, doubts, whatever, confusion, disagreements. And let's come next week, and let's see how we do. Amen? Thank you so much for being here.